Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. In this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken, and then maybe we stumble upon some answers together. That's the whole idea. If you're familiar with either the term restless leg syndrome or its cousin, periodic limb movement disorder, then I'm excited to introduce you to somebody who's devoted an entire career to trying to find a way to make your nights and your sleep easier. He's Dr. Richard Allen from the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. If I'm just reading straight from the Sleep Research Society here, who just gave Dr. Allen their Outstanding Scientific Achievement Award, he founded and co-directed the Sleep Disorder Center and the Center for Restless Leg Syndrome at Johns Hopkins, also served as chair of the Medical Advisory Board for the Restless Leg Syndrome Foundation, chair of the International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group, and president of the World Association of Sleep Medicine, now known as the World Sleep Society. Had a central role in defining the current diagnostic standards for restless leg syndrome, published more than 300 peer-reviewed articles on sleep disorders, including pioneering work on restless legs. I could go on and on and on and on. The best way to get you everything you ever wanted to know about one of the all-time legends of the sleep world is just to get you straight to him. So here's Dr. Richard Allen. Well, I, you know, Dr. Allen, you know uh, from having listened to the show before that everybody gets the same first question. Doesn't matter if you're the lead guitarist from the Rolling Stones or a world-class neuroscientist, you get the same first question, how did you sleep last night? Hey, fortunately, last night I slept pretty well. The night when you asked me the question, uh, I've thought about this because the night before I had terrible sleep. I just couldn't get to sleep. I had all these thoughts going through my mind. So I had to get up and read for about an hour. I, I like to read at night if I don't sleep well. I, I, I'm right now reading Dostoevsky, the idiot. And it, it's pleasant reading, but it doesn't get me too excited. Interesting. And is that always your, your go-to when you're having trouble sleep? When sleep doesn't show up for you, you get up and read? I have two solutions. One is I get up and work on the problem I'm thinking about. Or the second is if that problem seems too anxiety-provoking and difficult, which in this case it was. I pick up a book and read, and I like more of the classics for that rather than an adventure book. I don't want a page turner because then I might read the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and there's a whole podcast out there. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard this episode of the show. There's a, a terrific podcast out there called Boring Books for Bedtime. Yeah, where I've heard about it. Yeah, Sharon Handy will actually read uh, one of the one of the episodes she did, and it sounds like I, I still need to go back and listen to this episode because it sounds fascinating. She read the entire terms and conditions for iTunes, which has got to be some of the most boring text that was ever written. So, it, if it works for people, great. Yep, I agree. I agree. I happen like Dostoevsky or some of the bigger ones. Now. I reached out to you um, partly to congratulate you um, for the award that you just received in in what I can only describe as the Oscars for the sleep world uh, from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine for the work that you're doing on periodic limb movement and on restless leg syndrome, two things that are very near and dear to my heart. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's, an, it's a great honor to receive this award, as you say, to a major award within our community. So, 
I mean, when I say that both things are near and dear to my heart, when I went for my very first sleep lab, which seems like forever ago now, um, we determined, well, I mean, my, my sleep doctor, Mark Boulis at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, determined that I had a periodic limb movement index of 82. Wow. That's, that's uh, heroic. <laughs> Um, it, it makes me afraid when people like you say that because I wonder just how, how I mean, how bad can periodic limb movement get? Because for the layperson, uh, a periodic limb movement index of 82 means that roughly every 40 to 45 seconds, I was kicking my legs in my sleep. How bad can that get? Uh, it can be very, well, depends on the person. Periodic limb movements themselves may not be terribly bad. They're a marker of an arousal process. And that arousal process can sometimes be very mild and not terribly disturbing, and you can sleep through it, and therefore it's not a major disruption in life. In other cases, it can be the dominant thing disrupting your sleep uh, and can be an indication of a disorder. We consider it a um, motor sign of the restless leg syndrome. And if you have the restless leg syndrome, then we then we have a major condition we need to treat. The periodic limb movements, if they're disturbing your sleep and they're bothersome, then they can be treated. But for many people, they just sleep right through them. It's not an issue. It's more often an issue for your bed partner who may complain about being kicked all night. Uh, and uh, their uh, sleep can be uh, challenging for them. Yeah, I got a few elbows in the ribs to uh, to testify to the fact that it was disturbing for my wife. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we started. And again, we need a better term for this, but it's one of the reasons we started a sleep divorce where we are sleeping in different rooms and she's getting some of the best sleep of her life now, now that she's not having to constantly wake up with bruises on her shins. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of sad, but uh, I agree it's a, it's a problem. Restless legs and particular movements disrupt the partner a lot. So let's deal with restless leg in a second because I, I and I definitely want to get to that before we walk away from, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, periodic limb movement. Do we know what causes periodic limb movement? We know a couple of things that are associated with it. Uh, one is that uh, the iron brain iron status is associated with it. So one thing we always look at is the iron peripheral iron status. Uh, that doesn't tell us what's in the brain. We don't have direct access to measures of iron in the brain, but we do. But the measurements are very complicated and not practical for general use. But one thing we always check on is make sure that people have adequate iron. And many people don't. Anemia is a common iron deficiency, even without anemia, is a common problem in our society. So people with leg movement should have their iron values checked by their doctor, easily corrected if it's low by oral iron supplements. Don't take oral iron, though, unless you check with your doctor first, because uh, some people have a um, genetic abnormality for due to hemochromatosis, and if you take oral iron, you may get iron overload. If you don't have that, iron's very safe to take uh, for almost everybody, but you should never take it without consulting your doctor and getting a blood test to make sure it's safe to take. The other thing that we're, we're looking at in lake movements is its relationship to general health and a relationship to arousal. Remember, what's happening in sleep with an arousal is that you're waking up a little bit. It's an alerting phenomenon. And for humans, that means we're getting, we're getting ready to stand up and move. 
and to stand up and move, we're getting ready to move our legs. And the first mark on arousal in terms of action you see from a body is it starts moving the legs in a way to prepare it to walk. So the leg movement that you get, periodic leg movements, involves a lifting the foot, lifting the big toe, lifting the leg, as if you're ready to take a step. Then you would swing out of bed and take that step if you're going through a full arousal. Uh, but in leg, leg movements, usually it's a partial arousal and you go back to sleep. What is it that makes you get ready to take that step? I mean, because I'm assuming as people are lying there in bed, the normal thing to do is not to prepare to take a step. So why are we getting ready to take a step? Do we know that? Uh, we, what we assume is going on is that there are arousal processes in the brain continually going on responding to internal and external stimuli. Um, and uh, these are easily triggered. Um, and in some people, it's just a small trigger and it just involves the leg movements and nothing else. It doesn't go to the rest of the brain. Uh, just it's a breakdown of the inhibition of the movement. Normally it's inhibited in the brainstem. It can be broken. That can be broken down. So these little periodic events can go on um, throughout sleep and have very little significance. So it just reflects it, an inhibition of that period event. However, in other people, it's a larger arousal process and it breaks through their quote, arousal threshold and disturbs cortical functioning. When it disturbs cortical functioning, then you get micro-awakenings, very brief awakenings. And these brief awakenings disrupt sleep quality. And then they be tired or not, not feeling, you wake up and you say, gee, I slept all night, but I don't feel good. I, feel, I still feel tired. And those are, and that's because the, you've had frequent, very minor arousals that you weren't even aware of. The leg room is marked, please. Now, I can't say that's happening for you. Because many people have these leg movements. They sleep through them. There's no cortical arousal. And it doesn't have any real major significance. Um, others have them, and it's disrupting their sleep and disrupting their function during the day. We're actually working. One of the areas of research I'm involved in is working on ways to identify which of these leg movements are associated with arousal that disrupts sleep and probably have health consequences, and which don't. So hopefully, we, we're, we're, what we're actually, what we're doing is taking some very sophisticated measures with a new technology that allows us to measure um, using capacitance and resistance to measure um, what the foot is actually doing and the leg is actually doing and getting a quantitative measure of that over a range. And then we're using advanced machine learning to identify those features of the leg movement which are associated with cortical disruption. So the arousal is now disrupting sleep continuity and therefore causing loss of function and poor sleep quality. So we, we hope that this research will lead us to um, better, to, so when you go into sleep lab, they won't just say you had 85 an hour, they'll say you had X number an hour with this level of arousal. Uh, and that, that this has this significance for you. Well, it doesn't have that much significance. But we're not there yet. That's, what, that's one of the areas I'm working on at this point. I feel like periodic limb movement, or PLM, um, I feel like the L might as well stand for leg instead of limb. Or does periodic limb movement sometimes happen in the arms, too? It should be, actually, it probably is most correct to say leg, because it should, it should always involve the leg. But it may, in 30, 
percent of, in terms of restless legs patients anyway, about thirty percent of them will have some leg movement, some periodic arm movement, or some involvement of the arms. Um, it's rare. In normal controls, in healthy people like you, the arms are almost never involved. It's only just the legs. But in people who have a, a more have have the restless leg condition or have a more severe arm deficiency, then we start seeing other parts of the body involved. It then gets into an, an urge to move. It even gets worse than that. Then, then in waking, you start getting this urge to move, which is the rest of things. Because I got a note from someone on the internet um, who, when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you, um, they told me how they've a couple of times awakened in the middle of the night and they sleep alone. There's no one else in the house. They awaken because they had been punched in the face and it was themselves. They had punched themselves in the face because their arm had jerked suddenly in their sleep and they literally punch themselves in. The, is, is that related to periodic limb movement or is that a completely separate thing? That's probably a separate disorder. Uh, uh, periodic limb movements rarely get in the arms, rarely get that violent. It's conceivable. It's more likely that, I mean, we'd have to know when that occurred, was he dreaming, what else was going on. But there are conditions, like the REM behavior disorder, where there are violent, sudden outbursts. And those would be the conditions where you might more likely hit yourself. And that's a, that's a different, well, it's not entirely different. Because, in fact, people with the rapid eye movement behavior disorder I mentioned also have very limitations. Not just restless leg patients. Also, the people with REM behavior disorder have So it marks that disorder, too. Um, less commonly, not as common as it is in restless legs, but it's still there. So it could have been with periodic movements also. But more likely that involved another parasomnia, either a violent dream, uh, action, or um, possibly use REM behavior disorder. As a person that listens to the show already, you know that it happens to me frequently where I'm talking to someone, I ask one question, and the answer to that one question sparks 10 more questions because it takes me down a rabbit hole that I love. I want to circle back for a second to something we were talking about before with anemia. If I'm a person who is anemic, not that I am, but if I'm listening to the show and I'm anemic and I have some sort of sleep issue – is that maybe a sign that I should be talking to my doctor about periodic limb movement and whether or not that might be? I mean, are those do those two things go together frequently where people with anemia have restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movement that is interfering with their sleep? Yes, about a third or maybe even more, but at least a third of people who have anemia and brain iron deficiency and also have restless leg syndrome. And these people, if you have anemia and you have any sleep issue at all, you should definitely be talking to your doctor about it. Because, uh, first of all, anemia shouldn't be ignored. It's, an, it's important to get it treated. And secondly, restless leg syndrome is itself a condition that you want to treat. You don't want to live with it. And we do have treatments. But of course, the iron treatment itself may, may correct. It, it's one of the conditions where you want to get aggressive about your anemia and make sure the anemia is well-treated, which may mean going from oral iron to actually using intravenous iron to treat your anemia. Also, of course, always make sure you check why you're anemic. Make sure you understand that. In some cases, we don't know why people are anemic, but in some cases, it's, it's a condition that can be treated. 
Let's see. I, and, and here's what I love is that that 30 seconds right there probably made the entire episode uh, worthwhile for a whole ton of people because they probably just learned something and are looking up their doctor's phone number. I love when those moments happen on the show. Um, let's talk for a second now about restless leg syndrome, because al- although my understanding is they do often go together, they're two very different things. Yes. Pericle uh, mumitaris, motor sign of restless legs. As I said, they occur in other conditions. But restless legs is a really awake condition where you're sitting there and you can't stay still. You have an urge to move or lying there in bed. So you know, it's a thief of sleep because it comes on when you're trying to rest. It comes on when you most want to rest. Suddenly you cannot rest. You cannot sit still. You have to move. And, of course, movement disrupts sleep. and just makes it impossible to sleep. So our patients will get up. Some patients will pace for a good part of the night before finally in the early morning this, this begins to abate because it has a circadian pattern. And then you can begin to sleep a little bit. It can be mild also. It can just be something occurs every third night or every other night, but it's very nasty when it occurs. It's, it's an awful yucky feeling. Um, you just... You're sitting there, you just can't be still, you can't be quiet, you can't get rested. You just have to get up and walk around, you have to move your legs. Uh, just the feeling itself is very uncomfortable. It can occur to you when you're sitting on an airplane for a long ride. Uh, it can occur, of course, lying in bed, trying to sleep. And it not only disrupts sleep, but it disrupts a lot of biological function and has adverse effects on your health. So we like to get people treated for restless leg syndrome. It's, it's important to see the doctor, review the medical status, review the iron status, of course, because sometimes that's enough, and uh, treating that's enough. But otherwise, there are, we have good medicines, uh, which can be used either occasionally as needed or regularly uh, to treat the condition. Um, it's undiagnosed. Many people have it, and they just suffer with it. Uh, and I don't like people to suffer I like them to get treatment. We have children who have it, and it disrupts their learning. It goes with attention deficit disorder, for example, as, as do periodic limb movements in children. So we have treatments for these, and children particularly, because they're usually very responsive to iron treatment. And in children, it's more difficult because knowing when they need iron treatment is a little harder to gauge by the blood tests because the blood tests are a less reliable prediction of what's going on in the brain. And what's considered a normal level is more difficult to determine in a developing, growing body with growing iron demands. So we, we think treating RLS is, is identifying and treating is very important. I, I, and it's interesting because we've been talking for both periodic limb movement and restless leg syndrome. We're talking about treatment. Is there such a thing or is the, are we close to or is it even in the cards a cure for either of those things? Or is it something that's just you need to treat? Because And, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. I uh, have, uh, it, it's usually close to me for whatever reason, um, my handy dandy bottle of Mirapex, which my sleep doctor put me on to treat the restless leg syndrome. Uh, and coincidentally, it also happened to knock out the periodic limb movements. Um, but I read something online that suggested um, that when I stop the Mirapex, that the restless leg will come back. So is it one of those things where when you stop treating it, it does come back and if you and there is no quote-unquote cure for it? Yeah, right now, um, 
what we understand by restless leg syndrome is that there's a, there are a group of patients who respond to iron treatment. And iron is the only treatment which when people respond, it's about 60%, 40 to 60% respond, 40% respond well, 20% respond dramatically. For that group of patients, the iron treatment suffices and sometimes they don't need any more treatment at all. Um, and sometimes they need a repeat iron treatment in a few years. So there's one group of patients where we can treat and prevent it from coming back or at least blunt it coming back. Well, but for the other people, all we have is palliative treatments. We know Mirapex and dopamine are involved. We know opioids we have to use um, in very severe cases. Um, and we like to use the gabapentinoids, uh, gabapentin or um, uh, the, the newer Horizon, which is a, a form of, um, of uh, the Alpha-2 Delta medications or pregabalin. Uh, but these medicines are only palliative. Um, they do not correct the condition. As I said, the only thing we know that actually provides some hope of correction is for a, smaller, a small percentage, you know, not small, but for a percentage of the patients that have significant brain iron deficiency that can be corrected by iron treatments. And, that, and otherwise, we don't have, it, don't have a treatment. We're looking, we're trying to understand it. Uh, I... I personally think that we need to find better ways of getting iron into the brain. And I think if once we find that, we'll be doing better at treating the patients. But we are only at now, we, right now at the point of understanding when the iron treatments work and what, what the brain iron condition has to be for them to work. And we have a lot further to go on that. So I know that you've listened to episodes of the show before. I know that my sleep doctor, Mark Boulis, uh, listens to the show regularly as well. Should Mark be expecting a phone call from me about uh, my Mirapex and I should be asking him if perhaps some sort of oral iron supplementation might be an option to use either with the Mirapex or perhaps instead of? Should I be should I be asking him those kinds of questions? Sure. You should, uh, personal dressers, you should always ask about their iron status to the doctor. First, first order, first recommendation in the treatment guidelines, look at iron. Second recommendation is to look at other treatments. Yeah, but, but, you know, I'll bet he's already done it. I bet this is, I mean, most doctors are aware of this problem now. When I, when I first started this research, I mean, I spent most of my life in research on this issue of restless legs, getting it defined, and working on the um, and the iron treatment with my colleague, Dr. Early. And the two of us have just really worked hard to understand this, understanding genetics, understand what we think of the epigenetics, which is even more interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you want to go into that, but you know, one of, the, one of the puzzles is why, for example, why is it that women who had children have a greater risk of RLS than men, but women who never had children have the same risk as men? What's the difference between women who had children and didn't have children? In our eyes, one of the big differences is the women who had children experienced, generally experienced, an episode of significant iron deficiency. And we think that sets up epigenetic changes that may be related to the development of this disease. So there may be some future in in the genetics and epigenetics and understanding this better. But we have a long way to go. But as I said, 
your doctor probably already knows this and probably has already tested you. So I'd suspect when you call him up, he said, sure. Hey, come on, Neil. We talked, we talked about that. You just forgot. <laughs> Which wouldn't surprise me one bit. Um, I, I, you know, because, yeah, mind like a sieve sometimes. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in one of the things that you just kind of blurted out offhand. You said uh, that you've spent most of your life researching restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement. And talk to me for a second about how that research has changed over the years since, you know, we go back to day one when you started looking at this compared to where we are now and how technology has influenced that research. Well, this has been one of the most, you know, if you were to think about going on a detective hunt, which would consume most of your life to find out information about something and make discoveries along the way, it would create an exciting lifeline. And that's what's happened. It's just, and that's amazing. I started setting up, started setting up sleep problems at Hopkins many years ago, 1970 actually. And, and it's been exciting to see that develop. But for me, the most exciting thing is to see the um, uncovering of the restless leg syndrome, the recognizing it, and and going one step further and finding technology that allows us to measure and un- unravel what some of the basis for the disease is. When we started the reverse remote treatment, there was no recognition. There wasn't even a good diagnostic standard for it. And so we've developed the diagnostic standards. We've helped with a large, developed a group of really brilliant colleagues who have um, helped set this up and have published on this. <clears throat> and we then started working on the basis for it, the treatments, which included first some issue of dopamine, which is what Jumirpex is involved in. But then we move on to the Alpha-2 Delta agents, which we developed and tested, and which I published in the in journal on. And we go on, but underneath this, we've been looking at the iron problem and discovered the relationship of iron. And now I've been able to work with some really nice colleagues uh, using new techniques in animals and animal models. We have an animal model we just recently published where the animal model has the characteristics of RLS, which is interesting because RLS has a loss of iron in the brain, but has effectively fairly normal peripheral iron, but reduced brain iron. And we found a strain of mice where you can iron deprive them and <clears throat> they will keep their brain, keep their peripheral iron, but lose their brain iron. And these animals we showed have the behavioral characteristics of, of restless legs, of restless legs-like behavior, which gets corrected with, with drugs like Mirapex. So uh, this has just been an exciting discovery going from defining the disease working with my European colleagues to start the genetics who they've done an incredible job on in Europe and up in Canada, and then working with the iron story, working with techniques like MRI and sonography, which we now use on, or trying to use on children even, to look at their brain iron, uh, who have attention deficit and restless legs. Well, we think it's, we think it's involved in both of those, at least a subset of those. And we think we can treat some of those children. Um, we know we can treat some of them with iron. And we think we can identify better who to treat using these advanced technology. And that's a new technique we're developing at Hopkins. So we'll see 
and where it goes. Uh, these, these are, this has been just an, an exciting detective game and discovery, uh, and it's been rewarding because we've led to new treatments. Uh, there are two or three new treatments out there. We first got dopamine involved, then we got the alpha-2 deltas, the gabapentinoids, and we got iron, iron treatment. Now we're dealing with some of the um, iron metabolism issues and it's involved with adenosine and recently a very nice product paper on, on the iron issue coming out of California on histamine involvement and the possibility of using some histamine drugs. So this has been exciting to see this development and um, I can't imagine, when I started I couldn't imagine what an adventure this would be and how rewarding it would be to see people well-treated, diagnosed and well-treated, who before spent most of the night up pacing around without treatment or diagnosis available. It's, it's been a very exciting adventure. One of the things I've learned from talking to people like you is that, uh, well, I'll use this as an example. Just this morning, there was a new study that was published um, in, I believe it was the journal Science, about uh, coffee. And and um, your perception of sweetness based on, uh, you know, your coffee. And I put that in the coffee is good pile, which is almost as big as the coffee is bad pile. Yes. Um, and there's so much research that's out there about whether it's coffee or cholesterol or whatever it is. There are so many areas of research where this study will come out and then three days later there will be a new study that comes out that says, hey, by the way, that study that came out three days ago is complete garbage because here's what we found. Except I don't see that. In the sleep world, I feel like the sleep world is on a path where all of the research tends to support other research that has been done, and there's very little contradictory research out there that's happening. Why do the sleep researchers get it better than everybody else? i give you two reasons. Uh, one is, at least in my field, at least in restless legs, we base it not just on epidemiology, which is the one you're talking about, coffee does this or coffee does that. Um, it tends to be more epidemiology. We base it more upon actual scientific investigation where we actually do some experimental studies or look at experimental variation or look at large control groups along with the treatment groups. So we've been more careful about our, our uh, the science underlying what we say and what we, what we present to people. Um, the second thing, which I think is probably important, is sleep is such a major part of life and has such a dynamic impact that when we're talking about these phenomena, we're not talking about small changes. We're talking about something that's big and has a major signal. And what I, what I always emphasize in looking at the data I look at is I want to see a major signal, not a trivial signal. If it's a trivial signal, we either got to refine the measurements or realize we're not going to get very far with that. So we look at really big signals. And many of the papers that are contradictory to each other are based on small signals and small studies, um, which don't replicate. In my field, for example, there are studies that are small and produce data which are just wrong. Uh, they have what we call type 1 errors. Uh, you know, in science, you can have type 1 and type 2 errors. You can have type 1 errors where um, you say that by probability this should be true, or type 2 errors where you say by probability this should not be true, but it is. So you can say it should be true, but it isn't. That's a type 1 error. It should be true, but it isn't. That's type 2. So you always have to guard against these. And I think we do a really good job in sleep medicine in doing that. 
largely that helped. It helps if you have a strong signal you're looking at. To throw one more thing at you, um, and then I'm I'm cognizant of your time, um, so I want to throw this one other thing because the amount of – we talk about, you know, errors and and bad research and those kinds of things. The number of people that are out there when it comes to restless leg syndrome and to a lesser degree, and at least in my – experience so far, periodic limb movement, the number of people who are online talking about how either cannabis or CBD or something like that uh, will take care of your restless leg syndrome and allow you to fall asleep easier. Is there any science at this point that backs up an assertion like that? Uh, Actually, we don't know yet about the cannabinoids. Uh, They are interesting. They have a lot of receptors, particularly including in the striatum, in the area that we think is important for uh, restless legs and periodic limb movements, but we just don't know enough yet about it. Uh, the research is too, I mean, here's a, here's a case, here's an example. We have clinical case studies which say cannabinoids work. We have other people who have experienced that it doesn't, and nobody's going to go out there and give you a paper saying, hey, use cannabinoids because we need to do adequate controlled studies before we start saying that. So we'll first do an open label study, then we'll do the control study. We'll do all the, we'll do all the things that science should do before it produces treatment for people. And um, right now, we don't know about cannabinoids. It it may be effective. Um, They may not be. And what I suspect is going to happen is going to be effective in a subset of patients. But again, we don't know that. It's unlike, for example, the dopamine agents. The iron agents, we have some idea who it's effective for. Um, The dopamine agents, we use cautiously because some people overreact to them. So we don't, we were very cautious about use of them, keep the dose low and don't use it as much as we need, anyone we need to, preferably PRN. And then, um, and then the gabapentinoids or GABA, the, that group we use uh, also cautiously, but we use it a little more aggressively. But they, they dug, the, the data on those are supportive of all these. These are based upon data. All these things I'm talking about are based upon the data in the literature. Um, and that, that's, that's important to understand. And so we just don't have that in cannabinoids yet. I hope we will. I'm sure we're going to be doing the studies. There's another of the poll quotes up there with the anemia and then now this one because there are so many people that are just so convinced that it is the thing that works for everybody. And I, I, I love it when I get a chance to talk to somebody who actually knows for a fact. And, and even if the facts are hazy at this point, um, this idea as is so prevalent all over the Internet that, oh, you got to try this one thing. This one thing probably works for everybody. Well, no. Anytime I see somebody claim that, I, I start to wonder. You ask me why we don't have a lot of contradictory statements in sleep. Here's an example where none of us, at least I don't think any of us in the sleep field, are going to go out and say this works because we haven't done studies. We're we're a group that works extremely well together and doesn't have a lot of division and uh, is very collaborative and sticks close to the scientific studies. Uh, you're one of those guests that every time I talk to someone like you, I, I have this illusion that over the course of the last half an hour, I've gotten smarter. And I know that that's only illusion, but uh, I, I appreciate the illusion I, I nonetheless. I think you were already smart to begin with. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'll take that. I'll, I'll absolutely take that. Uh, thank you so much for having time for this. And, and, you know, even, even just in the course of a brief conversation, there were so many things that I know will turn on light bulbs for people and hopefully spark some phone calls to doctors, maybe some references to sleep labs. And, and that's the goal is to help people figure out exactly what's wrong with their sleep and why. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Neil. It's good talking with you. Dr. Richard Allen on the Snooze Button podcast. Information on him, his award that he just won from the Sleep Research Society and everything else you could want to know in the show notes and on our website at thesnoozebutton.com where you can also find a ton of helpful links. You can leave a question for our panel of experts. Easy way to rate and review the show there as well. You can leave us your feedback, uh, the links to all our social media profiles there and a link to support the show with a donation to help keep it commercial-free and to, uh, well, keep the doors open, frankly. Remember, if you're crunched for time but you love the info, there are nine-minute versions of every episode with a different podcast that we call the Snooze Button Express. Please, do me a favor. Think of one person that you know who has some issues with their sleep and pass us on to them. Just give them the website, thesnoozebutton.com. We're back next Monday with a brand-new episode. Until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 